Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so grateful that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Today, I am honored to be joined by Christina Edmondson and Chad Brennan, and we're going to talk a lot about uh, the material and content found in their book, Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Past Talk to Sustem- uh, Systemic Change, and I'll tell you a little bit here in just a moment why um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation here. However, if this does happen to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I want to let you know that there's three values that um, that we try to live out here on the Learner's Corner. And the first one is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. Because as you know, uh, you can't have uh, just any old conversation uh, with anyone. And really what we want to do here at the Learner's Corner is to create a dialogue around um, what may be uh, difficult or sensitive or maybe uh, maybe even be viewed as controversial uh, subjects and to dive into that um, because <laughs> it's sometimes the conversations that we're most afraid to have that are the very conversations that are most important for us to have and so that's what we want to do here on the learner's corner so that's the first value the second value is this is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone regardless of whether or not we agree with that person completely or 100 uh, or 100 and it's okay to disagree and have dialogue with someone and the third one is this is that we believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone or sorry, I already said that one. It's We can believe, you know, they're very similar. We believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, regardless of what that is, because we believe that everything in life has something that we can take away from it, that we can learn from it. And sometimes it is, uh, sometimes it's something good that we can learn. And other times it could be something uh, very painful as well. And so those are the three beliefs that drive pretty much everything that we do here on the podcast. And so as I mentioned, uh, today I'm honored to be joined by Christina and Chad, and we're going to talk about uh, racism, diversity. Uh, We're going to hit on training for that as well. Um, But if you have something that you would love us to cover on the podcast or someone that you would love us to talk with, I would love to hear from you. And the best way uh, to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you on any topics or guests or anyone that you would love uh, to hear from on the podcast. And if you've been listening for a while or you enjoy this, make sure that you subscribe to my newsletter and uh, and look at my blog as well. That's where I am uh, giving tons of recommendations for some of the best things that I am learning from. Uh, Because I know that, um, one, learning can sometimes be a little bit uh, expensive, particularly as it pertains to uh, books or purchased materials, and that you may not have all the time available to you as well. And so what I do through the newsletter and through the blog is give you some of the best things that I'm learning from to save you some time on that. And so let me tell you a little bit about uh, Chad and Christina, and then I'll tell you why, why I'm so looking forward to this conversation today. So Christina Edmondson is a higher education instructor and organizational consultant in the areas of ethics, equality, or equity, and Christian leadership development. She also holds a PhD in counseling psychology, an MS degree in family therapy, and a bachelor's degree in sociology. And we're going to talk about uh, some of those aspects as well. Now, let me tell you, uh, oh, also, she is the co-host of the Truth's Table podcast. Now, Chad Brennan is the coordinator of the Race, Religion, and Justice Project and founder of Renew Partnerships, a Christian research and consulting ministry that focuses on diversity and race in faith-based organizations. And as I mentioned earlier, together they have co-authored this brand new book called Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change. Now, here's what really intrigued me about this book is that all all of this book is research-based and which is a very unique angle to it, which I absolutely love and uh, we're going to get into uh, a lot of different things. And and I love incorporating the research and even I, and 
we they get into it a lot more in the book but the history piece of it too and i love whenever books are able to incorporate the research and the historical piece as well as um as well as uh you know adding their own own thoughts and perspectives to the book as well and so without any further wait let's jump into the conversation Christina and Chad, I'm so excited to have you guys on the Learner's Corner podcast to talk about your brand new book, Faithful Anti-Racism. Thank you so much, Caleb. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Yeah. And and just as we're getting started, I uh, would just love to hear um, from the both of you on like, how did you guys come together on this project? And even like, what was the what was the stirring in each of you that led you to go, okay, not only do I need to do this project, but I need I need a partner. In this, in this project. And so maybe, Christina, starting with you and then going to Chad of kind of what led you guys to come together to work on this. Sure. I, I will do my best to tell the uh, the making of the band story. <laughs> this is what this question always feels like. You know, I was playing drums yeah. in my garage and then one day. Um, no, no. Um, so, you know, I, w- I was familiar with um, not just Chad's work, but just kind of a team of of researchers, quantitative and qualitative researchers who are looking at the topics of race and the church specifically, um, uh, Christianity and multicultural church and racism, et cetera. And so um, because of that, I think Chad and I both end up in, you know, these kind of think tanks and gatherings. (laughs) And so uh, pre-COVID days, (laughs) we were both invited to a um, a, a really unique gathering on the West Coast. And uh, we got an opportunity to be around a whole host of just practitioners and researchers and educators, pastors um, who, you know, are, are passionate about this work. Um, and, and then we just got to have a series of conversations. So, so it was a real, a real treat to really connect with and to have an extended conversation with Chad and others. Um, and then in the midst of that, there was a kind of a larger research project that was taking place. And I'll let Chad pick up, pick up the rest of the story <laughs> from there. Yeah, so Christina came to mind right away when I was thinking about someone to partner with on the book. And um, initially, we talked a bit about having racial trauma being more than a focus than it is. Currently, it has a chapter in the book. But we started even processing because when we talked about the current realities in the United States, we really wanted to make sure that the human cost of what we saw in our data was coming through in the book. And so I was really excited about having Christina's perspective with that. Um, In regard to the research that she mentioned, we had a really fun research project, 2019, 2020. Um, We had about 300 experts around the country that contributed in some ways with that project. It was just an amazing experience. And Christina was one of those experts. So that was fun, another kind of connection point with her. So I think the band out, Band turned out pretty good though. I'm excited. I think it's I think it worked. Yeah. And and talk to me about the research piece of it. You know, Chad, I was mentioning to you uh whenever, you know, kind of offline that that's one of the things that really stands out to me about this book and that even like separates it from other books like this is your guys' research is so in-depth. It's like that it just frames it and frames the conversation in a new way. And so I would just love your thoughts on that and what what you guys feel like the research was able to add to this project. Sure, I can speak to that a bit. So um, we've enjoyed having Dr. Michael Emerson on our board for about 10 years. And so for several years, about four or five years, we've been praying, um, is there something we can do broadly in the United States to help the church in this area? Our organization up to that point had worked primarily in Christian higher education. And so we were praying through, is there some ways we could do things more you know, nationally to help churches and other types of ministries as well? And so we thought of the idea of trying to repeat the research that he did as the basis for the book Divided by Faith. So that was 20 years ago. And so we reached out to Lily Endowment. They agreed to fund it. And so it kind of snowballed from there, honestly, like we began with what Michael did 20 years ago. um, And then it really kind of took on an incredible life of its own as we gathered research partners and and all these amazing people around the country. Um, As far as we know, it's the largest study ever conducted of racial dynamics in the United States, in U.S. Christianity, particularly. Um, Very extensive national study, um, focus groups in cities all across the United States. 
ethnographic research in churches. I mean, all kinds of things that we had um, that we were able to be do as a part of that. So if anybody's interested who's listening, you can go to rrjp.org and you can learn all about the methodology, all the type of research we did. And that really laid the foundation for a lot of the content in the book. Yeah. And I would just be curious to hear what, what was something from the research that like surprised or shocked the both of you in it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, so, so, so there are, there are a lot of things in the research that I think are just, just downright interesting yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and like and lamentable as well. So interesting and lamentable, but I'll put an emotional context to that as well. Um, I think some, some of the research was, um, I think depending on your vantage point, it could be kind of confirming, like from an, uh, an emotive standpoint, if this is, if you've experienced kind of the fruit of what the research is, is suggesting, then it, it would, it would be a, maybe even a bit of a catharsis for you. Right. Um, mm-hmm. but I would say one of the things that I thought was interesting was the way in which, um, uh, uh, Christian identification and race work together or seem to work together, um, in, in terms of one's understanding of racism um, and, and, and what groups it seems to work together in a way that make them more likely to affirm uh, a structural racism as a, a reality and what groups it makes them less likely. And so one of the things that stood out to me was, I, I think, um, and, and Tag can speak, I think, in depth about this, was the ways in which the comparison between uh, for white Christians and, and white non-Christians um, to, to see the difference in the ways that those two groups um, see or understand or affirm racism, uh, as well as in comparison to the ways in which uh, Black Christians and, and, and Black non-Christians um, see and affirm racism. And so for Black, uh, Black Christians, Black Christians are more likely to affirm the realities of racism than Black non-Christians. It's the opposite for white Christians. And I just think that's interesting when you think about the role of discipleship and the, and the, the development of the churches. Um, it, it causes me to ask more questions as a, a, a practitioner and as a clinician. Hmm. How about for you, Chad? There are a lot of surprises in there. Um, I think for me, um, optimistically thinking, I would have hoped that Christians, to Christina's point, would have had more clarity on issues of race, would have had more motivation to address racial injustice in the United States, but we actually saw the opposite, in particular with the, the primary racial groups that we measured, which was white, black, Asian, and Hispanic or Latino Christians. Um, we saw that trend to be true with white Christians, um, Asian Christians, and Hispanic Latino Christians, that being a Christian tend to um, correlate with having less accurate views on racial dynamics in the United States, and also less motivation to address racial injustice. Um, whereas with Black Christians, we saw being a Christian an amplifier. So you were, if you were a Black Christian, you were more likely in those areas than non-Christians in the same racial group. And so um, unfortunately we didn't have sample sizes, you know, large enough to look at other um, indigenous Americans and, and other groups there. And um, that's something we hope to do in the future. Um, but uh, so that was, that was just, you know, that was really sad and disheartening. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on uh, like the difference between, you know, how white Christians responded and black Christians responded and maybe what may be like, uh, like the, the cause or the reason behind that? I mean, I, I think this is the, this is where um, we have the opportunity to hear from history and, as well as to ask more and more research questions, right? Yeah. So the thing about the thing about research projects, whether quantitative or qualitative, is that what ends up happening is that you're like, actually nothing is now settled. I, I have a lot more questions. <laughs> so I have a lot more questions about why that is. And and research, you know, particularly this type of study, rarely is going to ask the what's underneath like what created the uh the phenomenology that we're seeing uh, instead it's, it's going to have us at best be able to look at things that we can kind of com- compare um but with that being said uh, you know i think there is something to be said from uh, if we look at this kind of the psychology of racism so what does it take uh, what what type of discipleship has to be in place if you think about the hundreds of years of whether it's uh, indigenous genocide um, and subjugation, or whether it's the transatlantic slave trade, what does it what does it take in terms of uh, discipling or some male form version of discipling um, to shape uh, complicity uh, amongst Christian people for those types of atrocities? 
And um, so, so, so this is not, you know, my, my last international trip <laughs> before uh, COVID hit was to South Africa. And, and, um, and I remember us uh, visiting a historic church um, uh, in, in South Africa. And while we were there, less than, maybe less than 150 feet away from the doors of this historic church was, a, was what was left of, it, of a tree stump, a huge tree stump. And then there was a plaque on the ground. And basically the plaque on the ground said something to the effect, this is in, the, in honor of the enslaved Africans who were put here, tied to this tree while their owners went and worshiped God. And that, that moment, that kind of snapshot of what, wow, what, what level of kind of distortion has to be taking place to go in and to worship, when we know we have an, a text that reminds us, you know, <laughs> um, you know that uh, that you know, do justice, uh, do good. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, don't. You know, all of our praise is um, and our worship is is almost perverse if right outside our door um, is injustice and people that are suffering. Right, we do nothing about that. It's one of the forms of worship, and God is doing justice. And so, um, that's the South African example. But if we look at the United States, we would find many, many examples of of a long history of being able to uh, tolerate. Um, that type of oppression. And so I think there is a kind of a distortion that can take place over time. And then I think there's a different read of scripture and a different emphasis, right? So I always tell people that, you know, if you've got a particular burden in your life, all of a sudden you're a believer, you could become an expert on that topic in scripture, <laughs> right? So, you know, if you, if you really, really are like, you know, what, tell me about, you know, how God sees women, you know, it's not surprising to me when I find women who know a whole lot more about that topic than men, for example. Um, because they've sought out the scriptures in that way. And I think that if you're a person who represents, kind of, you're on the bottom, you're on the margin, mm -hmm. and you're still knocking on the doors of heaven for an answer, then you're likely to produce kind of a culturally contextualized, but very robust theology about justice related to your group. Whereas if you are benefiting from the injustice or just kind of, um, you're just kind of uh, out of it. Like, you know, you're, you're, just, you're just so kind of at the center that you don't see what's happening. Then you would in some ways be, I think, either malformed or deficient in seeking out that type of robust theology. Yeah. Uh, one of the questions that I really wanted to ask you guys is what, what do we get wrong whenever it comes to diversity or even pursuit pursuits of unity as well? So we actually devoted a chapter in the book to that. Um, so we've got a chapter in the book called uh, mad, you know, Faithful anti-racists don't use magic or rely on magic right. um, to, to produce change. And so uh, that came from both of our experiences in doing this work. Uh, there's just some things that we really consistently see that Christians rely on. And in my case, I've relied on myself um, through my personal journey. Um, just things like, I just need to make friends with people of another race, or we just need to have our organization become more diverse. That's a real common one, been a big one the last 20 years. Um, there's other things like, you know, changing generations are going to change it just if we give it enough time, you know, open minded young people are going to change this country. And then there's also things at the organizational level, like I mentioned, you know, making a racially diverse organization. Um, we need to do training programs. So we're all for training programs. Christine and I conduct them all the time. Um, but oftentimes you know, training programs are relied on as kind of this silver bullet that if we just have a training program, then we're good. So there are quite a few of them out there. Yeah, talk to me about the um, the open mindedness of the next generation because I think that that's something that I hear a lot too. Of like, mm -hmm. you know what, it's gonna be okay in twenty years. You know, all the problems will be you know better. Blah blah blah. You know, whatever the thing is. Um, and just talk to me about why that isn't the case. Like, why we can't just hope for that. So I, I'll I'll let Chad. I think I follow up. I, I'm gonna tell a little story, <laughs> and then I'll let <laughs> then I'll let Chad. The story just popped in my head. And it's not designed to traumatize your listeners, but I do think it, I think it helps to do some, some correction um, in our thinking. So I, you know, I worked in higher ed, and specifically Christian higher ed, for close, close to a decade, uh, both teaching but largely as an administrator. So I, you know, I got to work with tons of students um, of, of that kind of Generation Z, young millennial, um, and you know, who we look at and say, like, they're going to have different views. And with that being said, in a kind of a really large way, in, in some cases, in some cases, they do. And, and, and the, um, and what I tell my students is kind of their brain development, where they are, is like the, is the per perfect brain <laughs> um, a maturation to actually do stuff to change society, right? So as you got kind of get like an old 40 plus brain like mine, 
you're kind of like, oh, let me think about my health insurance, et cetera, <laughs> right? Uh, but but that under 25 brain is like the, is, is the, they have the development to really have a strong sense of conviction, but also to apply activism towards. So it's not surprising that you would see college students leading movements, et cetera, right? With that being said, on this topic, I think we tend to think that in time, it will just get better. So from a theological standpoint, sin does not remit with time. <laughs> so, um, you know, for, for Christians who hold a particular view, and I dare I say even maybe like an orthodox view about original sin, uh, we believe that the consequences of that are, are still playing out today. Um, and that does not negate the power of the cross, right? But with, but with that being said, uh, we know that um, sin has to be wrestled with, right? It has to be resisted. And so time doesn't just change it. And one generation doesn't just uh, aren't just more enlightened uh, in, in the fact that they would resist it. I was uh, doing a uh, kind of, um, not, 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 not really a training session, but really like a prayer meeting for, for students who, uh, many of which were um, Latinx students. And this was during the last presidential administration. And there was lots of speculation about what it would mean for that particular group. People were, people were weeping. They were really concerned about uh, whether they were documented or undocumented, it's just a perception that they would be undocumented and mistreated in some way. And I remember there was a student who was present um, who identified strongly as, as a believer who was video recording the students as they were weeping. And when he left, I, I, I stopped him in the hallway and said, oh, I would love for you to stay. Are you okay? And I also noticed that you were recording. This is, this is not an event where we're going to be recording. And he shared with me that he was recording it for a website that kind of fit into his particular political ideology. Um, and it would be put up for mocking purposes that, this, that they're weeping about their sense of insecurity, their, their deep fear about what that particular administration or any other administration would, would mean for their safety and personhood. And this, I would imagine he would, had been no younger than about 19 years old. And in that moment, <laughs> he deleted the footage because I shared with him the story of the Good Samaritan. And I said, could you imagine the Levite stopping on the side of the road and saying, not only am I not gonna help you, I'm gonna record you as you're weeping and suffering. And then he hit delete. But, but I, sh I, I, sh I, share, I share that for two reasons. One, I was blown away that that's kind of how he felt like it was his duty to record that, to fit within his particular political ideology. Although it was mocking people that were, were suffering, but I also think the power of that intervention, this is who you said you were, you said you were a believer. And so when I applied the context of that scripture, um, I'm grateful that in that moment, he was like, yeah, I see, delete, you know? So I, I wanna put that out there as, as, a, as a message of hope that we use the tools that we have within the context of the faith and the Lord does the work of softening the heart. Anything you wanna to add to that, Chad? Well, yeah, I think maybe we could even spring off of that and think a little bit about that person. Okay, so one of the things that we can fall into as researchers is asking questions um, in ways that kind of measure things falsely or gives us false impressions about trends. And so, you know, we could ask that student questions like, do you think that there should be racially segregated schools? or that you know, um, marriages should be racially segregated or whatever it may be. And there's a very good chance that that student that Christina talked with would say, oh no, that's fine, you know, I'm, I'm all for that. And would really see themselves as kind of an open-minded Christian, not racist, if we asked specific types of questions. But if we asked other types of questions, we could really get at some underlying ideologies that would expose you know, some things that are, what we would say would be really antithetical to you know, racial justice work. And so that's really what we kind of unpack in the book is, you know, there, there are certain indicators, like we look at things like support for interracial marriage. It has gone, you know, it's rapidly increased since the, since the 1960s. You know, in the 1960s, there was very little support among that, among white Christians. And now it's like, you know, 90 plus percent or whatever. And so some people would look at numbers like that and they would say, well, look at these trends, you know, racism's going away. We just need to give enough time. But if we ask questions that are more related to like structural racism, do you have a structural understanding of racial injustice in the United States? We actually have seen a drop in that when we ask that number um, among white Christians for um, actually, let me make sure, white Americans, sorry, the data that I'm looking here is not, not just white Christians, but white Americans in general. In that sense, the, let me pull up the graph here so I don't speak out of turn. Um, so the graph that we use in the book um, starts in 1986 and there were 60% 
of white Americans who believe that black individuals face disadvantages due to generations of slavery and discrimination. And today, or in 2016, um, the number was like 47%. So we actually see a drop off in the number of white Americans that are acknowledging kind of more structural racism type questions. And so, um, and we impact that more generationally and so forth. So um, we just have to be really careful about assuming that, you know, some of these things indicate major generational shifts. One of the last thing and then we'll move on is I think it's important to recognize how this has been so historically believed as well. So, you know, they asked George Washington when President George Washington, you know, do you think we should do a, um, you know, abolitionism movement? What was his position or whatever? And he said, you know, I think it would be wrong to directly confront an institution that's quickly going away. And that was like 100 years before slavery was ever abolished. And so, you know, you, you think there's just always been this trend for generations to say, you know, this is going away, this is going away, just give it time. So I just hope we're not another generation to make that false assumption. Yeah. Uh, one of the, one of the things that you really uh, like sparked my interest in with with that answer is um, how do we make sure that we are like asking questions to get a complete picture of the thing? Because just as you were saying, we can ask the like and again, I'm not I'm maybe not even necessarily thinking for like the research purposes, but even like on our own individual level, like we can ask the questions and we can get the answers and we can go, I'm good. You know what? My my church right. is good. The people that I'm leading is good. And then you introduce those other questions that you said, and it's like, oh, I have some work to do. And so, <laughs> how do you, how do you make sure that you are asking asking those types of questions and not just sticking at the well? I got the answers that I you know wanted. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, for sure. You know, one of the things that comes to mind. Uh, so two things come to mind quickly, Caleb. When you said that, one. I mean, that's, that's like, the, that's, that's our, that's our Christian maturation process. Like we're, we're constantly where we should be constantly being confronted with questions or mirrors being held up that cause us to look a little bit more deeply um, mm-hmm. at, at, you know, at our own bias, but our own kind of the setting sins or whatever it might be. Right. So I think such is the journey of sanctification that they're always in a sense, spiritual questions that are causing us to unpack more and more. Um, the, the other thing I would say is that, um, from a from a teaching psychology standpoint, when I'm teaching a difficult topic, one of the things that what I attempt to do is um, have have us to start thinking about um, what what does this information and let's say that it's true, what does this information cost me? So in other words. Um, we're not talking about like a topic like do I like the color purple versus the color orange and I love the color orange, um, but but we're talking about a topic that really means something for people. Their sense of what it means to be a good person, relationships that they have, their family history, people that they love who share the faith with them that may have been uh, really kind of deficient or avoidant in, in this particular topic. They've got to reckon with all that. And so even before we start talking about the information uh, and before we try to pose just the right question, uh, we, we have to help people to start wrestling with the fact that the information itself can be upsetting and disturbing. And so what are some of the defenses, psychological defenses, that I may be inclined, inclined to utilize um, that would cause me to feel entitled to resist growing or learning on this topic? Because uh, it's, 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 it's not benign learning. It, it can be very painful learning. Doesn't mean it's not true. But it can be very painful learning. So, um, so those are some of the, I think some of the foundational things that I'm thinking about even before we get into the context of, of what is the right question. And Chad, I'd love for you to chime in about just kind of the composition of, of questions um, and how researchers think about what is how to how to land on the right question to get to what we need. Yes, it's such a tricky thing, and I think it's such a great point that Christina just made because one of the things that we see with our research is that oftentimes people answer with feelings or they respond with feelings instead of words, right? So when we ask a question, we I may have something in my mind as I craft a question, but when the person reads that question, that feeling that they have may overpower the words in the question. And so we do sometimes see these really kind of strange responses like, how could they say no to that? 
but it's it's a lot of times it is that kind of visceral dynamic that Christina was talking about. Um, let me tell you one story. When I first began designing um, surveys and doing research like this about 15 years ago, I was working on a survey and um, you know puts together some questions that seemed all very reasonable and you know spot on and and whatnot. And so and I put that bef uh, before a team of um, other researchers and experts and leaders that were working in the space that was a more diverse Christians of color taking a look at it. And one of the feedback that I received from that was, well, these questions are being asked in a white way. Like these have a, these are white questions. <laughs> and I just remember being really surprised, like, well, there's no such thing as white questions. Like there's just questions. And these are really normal, you know, good, effective questions. These aren't white questions, right? So it was, it was a part of me growing in this space and recognizing that those were white questions. Like I was asking things from white perspective. So we can never completely remove ourselves from that. But I think one of the ways that we can get better at it is by listening to a lot of different voices. And so, and really genuinely listening, not just for, you know, put a stamp of approval on this, but really taking the time to process and listen. So with our research project, as I mentioned, you know, we had about 300 experts involved in different ways. We had lots of different people speaking into various aspects of that. We're, we're currently wrapping up a, a project we've been doing for two years where we're designing a new assessment tool. And it's taken two years because of the fact that we, and it, it's a personal assessment and organizational assessment. And part of why it's taken that long is because we've had so many rounds of going back and asking, are we asking this the right way? Are we asking the right things? And, and those kind of things. So it's a really important question. You yeah. know, I was going to say, you know, even when Chad just said that, that story, which, which is funny. <laughs> um, although I imagine someone might be listening and be like, that's not funny. What is a white question? Why, why is it a racialized question, right? And what I want to say is that the questions that we ask have, have built into them presuppositions. And I, I think that's kind of what Chad is getting at. It's, it's, cent it's centering implicitly and, and sometimes explicitly the presuppositions of a particular group. And so that's why that diverse group of researchers could say like, this is a really white question because it, it's likely that the question was, was centering unintentionally presuppositions about race from a white dominant view. And that doesn't mean every white person has that view, but from in terms of thinking about in groups, it represents the group thinking. Um, about um, that that particular uh, person that is being asked the question. So I just wanted to, I just wanted to add some more context to that because that that tends to that's one of the newest things that tends to shut people down. If you had to write another chapter, that would be it too. Like the the racial labeling, and and, and people kind of already have a built-in mechanism uh, to kind of shut down and listen. But I want people to keep on listening because we all know we all know that questions have embedded presuppositions, yeah. and that's really what those uh, that team of researchers was highlight was highlighting for Chad. Yeah. yeah, and that that even takes me back to what you were saying earlier is that we ask questions and we learn new information, and sometimes it's the that wasn't a good question to ask, and then we ask more questions. Right. Uh, I, I want to go back to um, what you mentioned, what else doesn't work. And you talked about training as well, which again is something else that has been talked about a lot. And so I would just be curious for your guys' thoughts on what what is, you know, maybe a sign for each of you of like, yeah, this is this is actually ineffective training. And then on the flip side, like, hey, this this actually like this is a sign of effective training. And so, Christina, maybe starting with you, yeah. and then we can move on to Chad. So, I, so the first thing I would say in terms of, of what, what will likely be ineffective is, um, is kind of teaching, in a, like teaching into the abyss. And what I mean by that is when whatever we're teaching any subject, if we don't have, if we don't have a sense of where our students are, then we're, we're going to be limited in our ability to, to strategize the right kind of pedagogy and content to, to, to properly instruct uh, that that group or that individual. And when we talk about topics like race, there's a way of teaching and presenting information. Um, if we look at something like um, the intercultural development continuum, for example, there's a way we can present information to people, depending on where they are in their own development, it can cause them to further retreat and regress. Now, ultimately, if what we're sharing is true, then, you know, as believers, we should be attracted to the truth, by the way. <laughs> but with that being said, we want to be we want to be wise teachers. We want to be really, really wise and also honor our own our limitations. So when we go into a space and we have not done the pre-work of really understanding of who is in the room um, to the extent that we can right, through assessments, through interviews, through exit interviews for an organization, whatever it might be. Um, we, we oftentimes set ourselves up to construct a cookie cutter training that will um, 
fall flat, but or maybe even create even more defensiveness to kind of shut down the learning process. That's one thing that comes to mind is that I'm, I'm looking at a kind of a cookie cutter training that hasn't been tailored to that that group, they were probably going to have some some issues. Yeah. How about for you, Chad? Yeah, um, one of the sad things is we do see quite a bit of problematic approaches and, and just negative fallout that often results um, from training programs. Let me give you a couple of common scenarios. So one is that the leadership of an organization will read a book or they'll hear a sermon, they'll get excited, they'll say, we believe that racial justice is biblical, this is important, we need to do this. And then they will kind of roll this training program out to the organization without any context. And so the other members of the organization haven't been on that journey with them. They didn't hear the sermon. They didn't read the book. And so they immediately push back and it, it become, and then it becomes a, are you shoving this down our throat? They don't feel bought in, you know, there's no alignment there and so forth. And so that's a common thing. But then oftentimes that leader will feel that conviction and will kind of push it through. And so there, it, it can really cause a lot of tension and actually have a negative rather than a positive, even just the invitation process. Um, another one that often happens is voluntary invitations. So you throw out a big appeal in an organization. You say, hey, we're going to do this conversation or we're going to have this small group or, or whatever it be. Well, who's going to show up? Well, of course, you're going to preach to the choir. It's going right. to be the people that are already inclined this way. And so, you know, you may get 10, 20% of the organization to show up, but it's going to be all the people that were probably already reading the books anyway and already having those conversations anyway. So it ends up just kind of being like, again, you know, reinforcing that element of the organization that is already predisposed this way. So in order for it really to have organizational change, you have to look at more ways to do it more comprehensively. Well, immediately you step again into that space of like, if you make something mandatory, that's a whole nother set of, of issues, right? That you need to work through. So that kind of prep for the training is oftentimes um, very underutilized, um, kind of poorly conducted in organizations. And so even before the training ever even begins, it's kind of set up to fail. And then what often we see too in trainings is that people of color, of course, are invited to be a part of that, the leadership of it and be voices. And that's very productive, but and, and super important, of course, but a couple of things that can happen there that can be problematic. One is it can put a really um, huge emotional toll on the people of color. So in many cases, it isn't safe spaces for them to share their perspectives honestly, because they'll face, you know, they may not be, um, you know, given leadership positions, or they may actually be fired from their job if they're candid about things like dynamics in society or their political views or dynamics in the organization. So there's some real threat to them participating, not to mention the emotional threat of them sharing their souls with a group of people and then minimizing it and saying, oh, are you really sure that that police officer pulled you over because you're black? Or are you sure that that person, you know, treated you differently because you're, you know, Hispanic or whatever it may be? So um, so there's the emotional toll side of it. There's also another problem with that too, is that oftentimes the people of color in the organization have oftentimes either agreed to or found ways to accommodate the existing culture. And so oftentimes they don't necessarily represent people of color in, in our society or even in the church, because if it's a predominantly white, say, say it's a predominantly white evangelical, you know, mega church in the suburbs. Okay. So that doesn't necessarily represent the views of people of color in that entire city. And so you're getting a small subset of perspectives. And so sometimes the views even of the people of color can kind of reinforce some things in organizations that have challenged them. That's another piece. So the, it just goes on and on and on. There's, there's so many dynamics here. But, and I would say another thing that really falls, that, that causes on the, the back end of that is after the training is over, oftentimes there's a way over exaggeration of the impact of that training. So really what we've asked people to do is sit in chairs, you know, typically for some hours, right? And, and listen to someone, talk to them and maybe process with other people. That's a good thing. We do it all the time. That can be a good thing, but that hasn't really challenged them to change their lifestyle or, you know, and, and really make significant changes in their lives. So we don't want to overestimate that impact. And so it, it just on and on and on and on, you know, the, there's so many things that can, that can go wrong. And then lastly, then I'll stop is that oftentimes it is not connected to any ongoing institutional change. Right. So it, it ends. And, and then sadly, many times people can say, well, I did it. I'm done. I've done my part. Mm -hmm. And then they move mm -hmm. on. And so it actually can decrease motivation to do the systemic changes that are required for that organization to do. So when the leaders then go and say, oh, we did this training, hey, we need to change this practice mm -hmm. or, you know, accommodate 
you know, in these days, what would talk? Oh no, I, I attended that training. I'm good. I don't need to be a part of that. So does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. So oh, yeah. we, yep. we, we want it, we want this. I mean, training can be really good. We don't, we're not here to say like, shut it all down, but it just can be really problematic. Yeah. And let's, let's talk about for the person, for the person who is listening, they're like, oh shoot, what, what can I do? What would you say? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, so, yeah. And so one thing I say, so the, the, the first chapter of this book is, uh, you know, faithful anti-racism, you, racist, you know, use wisdom. Right. And, um, and really what, what I think Chad and I are trying to offer even just in that short response to that question that you lifted up, Caleb, is that we're, we're, we're thinking about how to pursue something wisely. Um, which which does require, I think, stepping back, and it is um, it's it's a kind of a deeper, more thoughtful approach, a multidisciplinary approach, one that's one that's thinking about multiple factors in the room and outside the room, and that does take some that takes some degree of time to to do that well, and so wisdom is you know incredibly important. I would also say this: we don't let the pursuit of the perfect defeat the progress of the good. And so even with all that we just outlined is like, these are the problems of training. We're like, oh, well, you need to do something. <laughs> you need to do something. And, 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 that, and that's another thing that I've certainly seen happen. I've seen people say like, well, this is just such a hard thing. It's just terrible. And just when Jesus comes back, then it'll be okay. And so, so they kind of they look at it like, well, that, it's, just, it's just too difficult. Um, and what if I say the wrong thing? And what, you know, people are so sensitive about the words that you say. And what if I get it wrong? And I'm like, you probably will, which is why I always recommend to people to put in their pocket several I apologizes in their pocket. Like prepare yourself to say, I apologize. I was I was limited by what I did not know at that moment. Now I know better and I want to do better. Is there a way that I could make amends? Like you, you cannot do the work of resisting racism without having some handles on the work of repentance. And that's, I think, the overarching kind of maybe theological hole at times when we have this conversation. So we're not going to pursue this perfectly, but we are still required as in a verb, do justice, right? And so we are as prepared as possible. And then we're accountable and submissive to people who know more about this topic and who it, it affects them personally in very real ways uh, so that we can walk forward with wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Christina, I want to go back to something that you mentioned a, a little bit earlier. And uh, I remember whenever I read this section of the book, I felt like, oh my goodness, you put where you were putting language to something that I've seen. And you talked about the label mischaracterize and dismiss tactic, which ha I mean, I, I see that a lot too. And so I would love for you just to un unpack that. Yeah, well, and certainly Chad, chime in, <laughs> chime in for it. <laughs> uh, well, we've seen that just throughout American history. One of the things I enjoy, well, I hate to say enjoy because it's, it's sad, but also that it's interesting, though, is, yeah. is for us to look at the same arguments that we might hear now, because some of the same name calling that we might hear now existing like 100 years ago or certainly 50 years ago, kind of these remixes to use a music term, but it's, it'll, it'll be a different time, but it's really still the same strategy. So you can look at um, the, the abolitionists from the 1800s and you can look at some of the accusations that were leveled against them by other believers, right? That they, um, you know, they, they weren't just, they, they should just preach the gospel, um, that they were off track that they uh, were focused on worldly things instead of heavenly things. Th those, those same arguments still exist now, that they were in cahoots with secular institutions or political powers, whatever they might be. We, we can see that throughout each generation and, and even now. So the same critiques that were leveled at a Frederick Douglass, <laughs> um, the, sa the same critiques that would have been leveled at a Harriet Tubman um, and the and the accusations that they're not really true believers because they believe that we're called to resist racism, we still see that happening today, and we still see that happening amongst amongst believers, uh, uh, between believers today. Mm -hmm. yeah. Any thoughts on that, Chad? No, very well said. <laughs> uh, uh, Christina, one thing that I wanted to ask you about, and you, you briefly touched on it earlier, but um, your, your expertise in, in trauma as well and you know you write about this in the book and and i would love for you to tease out the difference between like racial trauma cultural trauma and then psychological trauma as well of kind of like what what that looks like yeah so so uh so so racial and cultural right so we can think of a a cultural trauma as uh, something that happens to a cultural group um that 
in some ways uh, puts like a page holder in this in in the book of our life, like in our in our collective story. So uh, so a significant cultural trauma for the people in the United States. Uh, if if you were you know alive and well at this time period, I realize some people were not. Would be nine eleven. So you know, nine eleven uh, froze in place for me. I remember where I was. I remember the conversations with other graduate students in the class. I remember the the rumors and even the misconceptions that were flying in the air that day, what was on the TV screen and really how it felt. It, it stuck with me. I remember the um, the when the Challenger crashed. Um, I, re I remember when, you know, so we're all watching this. I was much young. I was a kid watching that on TV. And then this, then this, uh, this space flight, it, it blows up before our eyes. And just, I remember that moment. It's like, it's seared in. I remember um, this, this, the COVID-19 <laughs> and I will probably, I will always remember this coronavirus experience. Okay. Um, so those are examples of cultural traumas that we as a collective community of people have had an experience that alters the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see society. And that's the case for all the examples that I, that I just laid out. Racial trauma is specifically tied to this, this idea, right, of race and um, the way in which we have been um, kind of identified by these kind of clusters of racial groups and the necessary subjugation for maintaining that stratification, the experience of that, right? So, so, so race is not, you know, it's different than we think about kind of ethnicity or culture in general, where, where race has been used since the 1600s specifically on the agenda of stratifying for the purpose of oppression and dominance. So it's, it's not a benign uh, category, although we use it kind of flippantly in that way. Um, our very earliest census are gonna, are gonna really have like two groups in the United States, right? Enslaved Africans um, and, and, and whites. And, and some and kind of ignoring oftentimes that there are indigenous people in the land as well, right? So even in that sense, right? So kind of our very earliest inceptions in the United States of race have always been on uh, the overlapping agenda of subjugation. And so racial trauma is really the reckoning of the cost of maintaining the racial stratification system for people of color. And, you know, there, there are so many stories um, and experiences that are well-documented um, that, that people of color have about uh, implicit and explicit racism and the way in which, again, they then become shaped and reshaped in terms of how they see themselves, how they see others, and and also how they how they see God, how they see the divine, um, as a consequence of experiencing um, racial trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, this this may be this may be a really dumb question. I'll just uh, put that. But like, is it possible for like an event both to create racial trauma and cultural trauma at the same like at the same time? Totally, totally, okay. totally. Right. I, um, so. Um, you know, there is a, I'm trying, I'm drawing a blank on, on the name. I'm not sure if you mentioned this story in the book, Chad, you might, this lets you know where my, my post-COVID mind is. Um, <laughs> but, but there is a, a famous story about um, uh, the, the Jane, Jane Fonda's uh, father, um, where, you know, he's a, he's a young boy in a small town. And one night he's, his father's a shopkeeper. And one night there is a, there's a public lynching and his father pulls him aside and has him kind of you know, hide out because um, there's a mob of violent, violent men that are about to lynch and they do publicly lynch a black man in the middle of this particular town. For, 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 um, for that little boy who then grows up to be a, you know, a famous actor, um, that becomes defining for him. Obviously it's an experience of racial trauma for that African-American community, but it also it has a traumatizing impact on him as he looks out at a group of people who in many ways looks like him um, committing this this heinous act, um, and and for that town and that community, that becomes a shared experience, a cultural trauma for them as well. So it does it does shape him. With that being said, um, uh, it it shapes uh, him in a way that he actually develops kind of a tradition of acting and taking the character who is the the voice that points out injustice. Um, throughout his, his acting career. But, um, but nevertheless, I would say that's kind of an overlap of a racial trauma and a cultural trauma for that, for that community. Mm -hmm. uh, Chad, one thing that I 
I wanted to ask you about is that you have you have this quote that really stood out to me in there and and you write until recently I believed that conversations around racial racial trauma were mostly for people of color but I now realize that they are essential for white people like me as well mm-hmm. and I would just be curious to just hear your perspective on that yeah I think a lot of that stemmed from the fact that I you know just kind of looked at it from the side of <clears throat> just the pain um, that it inflicted on people of color, obviously, being in a racial hierarchy like we have in the United States. I mean, those of us who are white tend to receive benefits and people of color tend to receive disadvantages. And so I was looking at that side of it, which is very true. And so that's part of why, I, even if I talk about, you know, the damages inflicted, like on, you know, the example that Christina just gave with Jane Fonda there and um, how for him, it produced a desire for action, right? So it affected his acting career which is great. Um, But I think even in addition to those kind of things that may be impulses for change and positive aspects too, there's just this psychological and physical tool that it takes on those of us who receive benefits because of a racialized system. So, um, sorry, she just corrected me. I I mentioned Jane Fonda. It's Henry Fonda. I remember it. I remember it. Go for it. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. She popped it in there. So yes. So it was Henry Fonda and how it impacted his acting career. Um, So, I like to keep a distinction there because of um, the fact that we don't want to say like, well, you have pain and I have pain too. Like I want to be careful to not do that as a white person to kind of equivocate those two um, because obviously a person of color under a racialized system that is oppressive is experiencing things that I will never experience as a white man. Mm -hmm. But I also am experiencing as a white man pain because of this racialized system that people of color don't have to experience. And, and that's something, honestly, I'm, I'm just beginning, I think, to understand in my life. I mean, I mentioned in the book is something that I'm, I'm learning more. I think there's actually some more helpful research that's now being done on that as well, both the physical and psychological costs of being in the dominant class or in the privileged class in a society. Um, there's some real, really, um, you know, physical and emotional um, pains that we suffer through with this. And it's important that we recognize those. And then I think also as Christians, it's also important for us to understand the spiritual realities to this as well. And so I think to be, whether or not we are doing it intentionally or unintentionally, to be in the in a group of people that is oppressing another group of people, that darkens the soul. Like that hurts us emotionally and spiritually in ways that we need to understand. And we need to go to Christ and ask for healing and an ability to break out of that. So um, yeah, it, it hurts us all. Yeah. Last question I want to ask you both is um, through this process, I would love to hear um, what's something that you have learned from each other through doing this work together. Chad, maybe starting with you and ending with Christina. Specifically about working with each other, yep. like learn from each other. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, you know, one of the things I've, I've learned a ton, obviously it's been really fun. So it's been, man, I think two and a half years now, this whole book writing journey has taken us. So, but one of the things I really have appreciated about Christina is that I know having these conversations is hard, like processing this for hours and hours and hours and webcasts after podcasts and training and being up in front of people and, um, you know, both from Christina sharing and then also working with other people of color who are doing this work. It's a very emotionally draining, painful to keep reliving this. I, I have a co-trainer that we've been working together for 20 years and she compares it to sharing a rape story over and over again. That's how difficult it is to, you know, continue to get up in front of people and, and open your soul in that way. And so I just appreciate that Christina can do that with such grace and humor and lightheartedness that it, it still is you know, I'm sharing about really deep, painful things in my life, but I'm doing it in a way that doesn't, um, you know, doesn't push you away. It pulls you in. So I've learned that's been really fun for me to see and earn. It's one of the reasons I enjoy doing things like this. Every time we get to do this, it's another opportunity for me to get to see that gift. Yeah. So I, I have so enjoyed working with, with Chad and um, it has been two and a half years. Wow. And, uh, you know, we're, we're in the midst of COVID times, which are like dog years too. Right. So if it, um, so we, we feel that two and a half years, maybe even more. Um, so no, I've enjoyed uh, one, um, you know, this, this is a book that we prayed over ele- every element <laughs> of this book. And so, um, and so I, I have seen Chad really apply his Christian disciplines, not only kind of his, his academic and kind of researcher skill set to this work, but also kind of a h- humble submission to the Holy Spirit 
and kind of a and, and, and recognizing a really, really neat, a real deep need for um, for the Lord to guide the writing um, and to to create the right type of attitude and, and the winsomeness and the witness and the courage uh, to do this type of work. And so um, I can just, you know, I can testify to uh, acknowledging that uh, both did it Chad praise. <laughs> which is really important, <laughs> really, they pray. And that this is a book that we have prayed over. That doesn't make it a perfect book, but it does mean that it's a book that we, we wrote with, um, with a degree of humility. Um, and, and, and we hope and pray in partnership with the work of the spirit. Yeah. Well, I know that people are going to want to, you know, pick up the book and stay in touch and continue to learn for the both of you. Where's the best place to go for people to do that? To learn to get the book or to learn to get the book to yeah. keep up with the both of you, all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So Chad, go 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 tell the people about the website. <laughs> so yeah, so all things all things um book are faithfullyantiracism.com. So you can learn all about it. And one thing we haven't talked about, which was also a part of our preparation for the book, was we had the opportunity to interview 29 um great advocates for racial justice, Christians around the country doing great work. And our interviews with them are posted on that website too. If you'd like to check those out and um, so that's fun. And um, also in terms of like ongoing resources and support that are connected to this work, we talk about it some in the book. Um, if you go to RJUC, that's the Racial Justice and Unity Center, um, rjuc.org, you can learn all about that assessment tool that I just mentioned. Um, we're excited that's finally getting out to the public here um, really soon. And also we have a coaching network of really great folks around the country who are really experienced in this space that would love to help. So you asked the great question of like, well, what can we do? Well, I think those are two, it's not the, it's not a silver bullet. It doesn't fix everything, but I think two of the things that people can do that are genuinely effective and helpful is measuring progress in, in effective ways and also seeking out the help of others. And I think that one of the, one of the things that can be really helpful is seeking out the help of others that are outside of your typical context. So outside of the organization you're in, the circle you typically run in. And so the coaching network through the center provides an outside voice that can maybe be candid, uh, maybe will not be as inclined to groupthink on some certain things. Um, and I think that can be an incredibly big step for progress. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you both just for uh, creating this awesome work of art and for doing the work. Thank you so much, Caleb. Our pleasure, my pleasure. And I'm sure Chad too, talking with you today. Indeed, yeah. For sure. Yeah, I really appreciate the invitation and the great work you're doing. So coming out of that conversation with Christina and Chad, there's really two, two big takeaways for me as it pertains uh, to this conversation here. And the first one is this, is the importance of learning to check our assumptions. There's so many times uh, all throughout this conversation and all throughout the book that um, that they they talk about what is maybe common thought or uh, what is common a commonly held belief and showing through research that that probably isn't the case or that may not be exactly how uh, how it turns out you know they they talk about the diversity training in that and they also talk about you know the the hope for the next generation that like hey everything is going to be better with the next generation and just realizing that we can hold those assumptions but that doesn't mean that that is the truth that that doesn't mean that they're accurate and so i think for me of just realizing the importance of of just knowing what my assumptions are and not just holding them because i i hope that they're true or i wish that they were true but diving into and learning, okay, is there is there good reason? Is there evidence for holding this view or holding this perspective? And the second one is this, is the importance, and I'm just saying it, how just understanding that sometimes questions can lead to other questions. And, you know, we talked about in there, especially, especially with the research of, you know, sometimes you, you phrase the question or you uh, you ask the question and then you learn a new piece of information or data which causes you to go okay I think I need to ask another question in order to understand this picture better and 
you know, so much of this conversation, you know, was around uh, race and racism and diversity and anti-racism and just learning um, and just learning as it pertains to, um, I guess, just learning in general, the importance of realizing that it is okay if you, if you need to ask questions after you ask questions and yeah. So I would say those are two of my big things that learning from this episode, I would love to hear from you and some of the things that you've taken away from this episode, some of the things that you've learned from this episode. And uh, the best way to reach out to me is learners corner podcast at gmail.com. And if you have someone or something that you would love us to talk about on the podcast, you know, reach out to me there and let me know and we can work on making that happen. Also, if you've been enjoying this, uh, you know, content or this, these episodes, leave a rating, write a review on the podcast, hit subscribe or follow. You'll never miss an episode. And, uh, you know, don't forget that I, uh, pr- uh, post and send out some of the best resources that I'm learning from via my newsletter and my blog as well. And both of those things will be uh, linked to in the show notes. So I think that's all that I have for today. Thank you to Sam Massey for providing the music for this episode. Thank you to uh, Christina and to Chad for being on the Learner's Corner today. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. That's all that I have for you today. My name is Caleb Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.